four of intensive care. Uh, this is a series about when life lets you hit the wall and you find yourself, as we said in the tagline, bruised, broken, and bleeding. And today in our series, here in week four, we're going to take something of a turn. Uh, the tagline for the title, Intensive Care, is Comfort, Healing, and Direction When Life Leaves You Bruised, Broken, and Bleeding. And in the first three weeks, we've talked a lot about comfort and healing and how God does that. But I wanted to, I wanted to take a new turn in the series today and begin to talk about direction. Because if you ever find yourself, or when you find yourself, when life falls apart, you're going to want comfort, you're going to want healing. But very deeply, you're going to want some direction in the fog. You're going to want to know what to do because you're not going to feel like doing anything. So how do I know which direction to go? I've shared with you for the first three weeks that a lot of this series comes out of my own personal experience. Late last year with some physical illness and anxiety and, and then even just turning the guns on myself, I, I sort of hit the wall. And in that experience, as I do what I always do as a Christ follower and, and probably what you would expect me to do as a minister. I opened the Bible and I would read the Bible for hours just searching for that answer. But I was in a place where I was focused, as I shared with you in the first message, I was tightly focused on my own performance. So every time I read the Bible, guess what I read? I read all the places where I came up short because I was focused on my performance. So even though I read the Bible and I was praying all the time, I just really wasn't getting the relief that I, I, I was really craving. And by this time, I'm taking four weeks off. I'm in Phoenix, and Mary Alice is there with me, and she's so good, and she would talk. She was really the only person pretty much I just talked to the entire time, and, and, and she listened to me and tried to, you know, tried to help me and, and, and everything. But I remember one morning, it was, it was New Year's Eve, I, I said to Mary Alice, after I had read and read and read the Scriptures, I said, is God showing you anything? When you, when you read the Scriptures, do you think that God is giving you a word for me from the Scriptures? And, and you, if you've ever been in that situation where I placed Mary Alice, you, you understand how uncomfortable that kind of pressure can be because Mary Alice knew me and knows me very well. She's known me since high school. And for me to turn to her and say, is God giving you a word for me when I'm going through maybe the most difficult crisis of my life, Mary Alice felt pressure to say, and she did, this is what she said. She said, Mark, I don't know any part of the Bible you don't know. You know, you know the scriptures from cover to cover. I don't know anything you don't know. Uh, but she said, I'll, I'll, I'll pray about it. And so by this time, it's, it's New Year's Eve, and, and I'm not feeling well, so I don't stay up to watch the New Year come in. We're in a condo that has kind of a bedroom, a little living room area, and so I go on to sleep. But Marilyn stays up with her computer and her Bible and, and is searching the scriptures, praying that God would give her a word for me. And she was in the Psalms, and, and she stayed up really pretty well into the early hours of the morning because at the end she just had this sense that God had directed her to some specific Psalms for me. And she put them together in a collection and emailed them to me. Even though I'm in the next room, she emailed them to me. And when I woke up the next morning, she had a grin from ear to ear. She said, I really think God showed me something in the scriptures for you. And she said, I emailed it to you. And I, like you, I try to get rid of as much email as I possibly can. But in my inbox, one of the earliest entries in my inbox says January 1st, 2011. And it's those scriptures that Mary Alice sent to me. Well, if you've ever been through a difficult time and God has brought you out of it, you know, after a while, it, it starts to fade a little bit, and you can forget some of the intensity of your experience. 
And, and I, you know, I came back and I was feeling great spiritually and feeling great emotionally and God healed me physically. And so by the spring, I'm going back a thousand miles an hour again. I'm, you know, doing all the things that I do. And I really sort of let some of it slip. One day, Mary Alice had a lady come in for counseling who dealt with anxiety. And when this lady began to talk to Mary Alice about what she was going through, Mary Alice said to herself, I wonder if I still have those scriptures that I got from Mark. And she started searching and pulled them up and shared those scriptures with the lady. And it was a real blessing to her. And Mary Alice came down to the hall after that session and found me. And she said, hey, Mark, have you looked at those scriptures in a while? And I said, honestly, I haven't. So I pulled them up. As I said, I had it in my inbox. I pulled up the scriptures and I reread them. And it was like they were more wonderful than ever. Because not only did I see how that God ministered to me at the time, I realized the, the scope of God's ministry in my life. And it was so awesome. As I began to look through those scriptures, I said, well, there's a talk, there's a sermon, there's a talk. And within about 10 minutes, I thought, that's a series. And I thought, you know, it should be something that has to do with like a hospital or emergency room or intensive care. And then I went down a few minutes later and found Dale. And I said, Dale, I'm seeing kind of a hospital in a helicopter. Dale was really seeing a helicopter. And, and that's how this series came to be, based on those verses that, that God gave Mary Alice for me. Well, these last three talks are going to come from specific verses from that set of psalms that Mary Alice found for me. And what was so powerful about them was that they not only gave me comfort and healing, but they began to give me direction. And, and I may not be talking to someone who's like me. You may be totally different than I, but, you know, I'm constant motion and I'm constant energy. But if my life starts to unravel in any kind of big-time way, I can freeze. And that's what was going on. I was freezing because I didn't know where to go next. I didn't know what to do for direction. So today, in, in today's talk, which is called Treatment Plan, can somebody make sense of this? I want to just give you one of the verses. In fact, I want to give you the very first verse. When I opened up Mary Alice's email, here was the line from Psalms that greeted me. Psalm 31, verse 24, be brave, be strong, don't give up, expect God to get here soon. Now, I grew up in church, and many of you didn't, and, and sometimes I think, I, I wish you could have grown up in church, but sometimes there are times when you actually have the advantage over some of us who grew up in church. Some of us who grew up in church, we heard a lot of poetic preaching. Ministers would wax prosy or poetic, and they would go off into poetic language. And, and if you're in a real demonstrative church, people might say amen, and they would, you know, clap and, and get real demonstrative. And after it was over, you think, well, what exactly did he say? I was like very poetic, but I don't know what it means in real terms. How am I going to leverage this tomorrow when I go to work? Well, I'm the most practical person in the world. So when I read that, it's like, hold on and expect God to get here soon. Well, hold on to what? I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a concrete thinker. Hold on to what? Hold on to the table? Hold on to what? And expect God to get here soon. Will he be driving up? Will he be flying in? You know, that's just what I'm like. I want to know, and I'm not trying to be a smart like I'm just saying, I want to know in tangible terms, what does this verse mean? I mean, here I am. I, I don't feel good. I'm getting worse physically all the time. Doctors can't figure out what's wrong with me. I'm dealing with anxiety on top of it. On top of that, I'm asking God what's wrong in my life. And God is saying, I do have a few issues with you, starting with the fact that you don't love me like you should. And I'm dealing with all that, and I'm looking for direction. And here this verse says, be brave, be strong, hold on. Expect God to get here soon. And so I'm saying, okay, I, would I want to know what that means. 
let me spend a few moments and tell you what it means. Because it came to me, I brought a talk here three years ago that I wasn't living by. See, here's the thing. As a communicator, I don't get a discount because I'm a pastor. I have to obey just like you have to obey. And, and I, had, I brought a talk here. And the funny thing about this talk is nobody remembers the title that the talk is from. Nobody remembers the name of the talk. Everybody remembers this talk by two words that we'll get to in just a few moments. But if you want to know what it means to hold on and wait for God to show up, one of the best places to go in the Bible is a verse that is many people's favorite. Uh, there are Christians who have what they call a life verse. I don't do this necessarily, but there are Christians that feel like there's one verse in the Bible that sums up their life more than any other verse, and they hold on to it in difficult times. And a lot of Christians will choose this particular verse as their life verse. There are people who will put it in artwork and display it in their homes because it's such a wonderful verse. I've actually known people to wear it on shirts or have it in jewelry. For some of you, you'll hear this verse for the very first time. But when, it, when you want to know what it means to hold on and wait for God to show up, you, you're not going to be Jeremiah 29, 11. Because Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. For I know, God speaking, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Their plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. Well, that's a great verse, but I need to give you a little history. I'm not a crazy person for history. But before you and I can understand this verse, we need to have a little history. Because see, there's some people that look at this verse and they think it's just for all human beings. Well, God is the Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky and he's just got good plans for everybody. And we can all just like take this verse and smile. And that verse has a context. And we need to understand the context before the promise makes any sense. This verse was written to the people, a specific group of people who lived in a land called Judah. Judah would be the southern half of the nation we know of as Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. But under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom became known as Israel with ten of the tribes. The southern kingdom became known as Judah with two of the tribes. Israel almost immediately went off into idolatry. Judah, on the other hand, was the more spiritual of the two parts of the nation. It might help you to know that Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. Judah, Jerusalem, was ground central of what God was doing in the world. These people were in a covenant relationship with God. But something called idolatry was creeping in. If you've ever studied the Bible and you wonder, what was it with these people? They just keep getting God so upset by bowing down before stone and gold images and wood images. Are these people crazy? They're getting themselves in all kinds of trouble because of some little idol. Why do they do that? You need to understand that people back then weren't stupid. They were as smart as we are. Those idols represented something. And by worshiping those idols, it allowed them to do certain things and in their minds get certain things. Now, we've got a bypass today. We don't bow down before the little idols, but people worship the same things. For instance, some of the idols were sex. It was worshiping sex. And when these people got together to do their idol worship, they were, they were basically getting into orgies. They could come to these orgies and they could have free sex. Well, again, people don't bow down to golden images today, but there are a lot of people that are in that idolatry. There were also idols of prosperity where people felt if they worshipped idols, they would, it would help them and you know, get more money. Well, we don't bow down before images today, but there are people who worship money. Idolatry is just loving anything or looking to anything more than we look, love or look to God. And God kept warning Judah, because God has said to Judah, I'm your God, I'll take care of you, we're in a covenant relationship. I will supply your needs. 
And instead of serving God, Judah kept worshiping idols. And God would send preachers and prophets, and he would say to them, please turn, and please don't keep doing that, because if you do that, God said, I'm going to bring chastening or judgment upon you. And 150 years before Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah 29, 11, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah who had said to Judah what must have sounded like the unthinkable. Isaiah had written them and said, if you don't stop the idol worship, God is going to let you go into captivity to Babylon. Babylon. What you should know is that Babylon was the center of anti-godlessness. Babylon was the anti-Jerusalem. If Jerusalem was God's city, Babylon was the anti-God city. It was the worst possible place in the world. Babylon, if you study the Bible, it always represents flipping God off. And it's in the book of Genesis. Babylon was founded by a rebel by the name of Nimrod in the early part of the book of Genesis. When you get all the way to the book of Revelation, we're going to be in a prophetic series Next time, called Strange Days Indeed, you will discover that the kingdom of the Antichrist, the center of it, is called Babylon. Babylon is like the anti-God place. And so how it must have seemed bizarre to the people of Judah to hear from Isaiah that if you don't straighten up, you, God's people, you people who are in a covenant relationship with God, who live in God's holy city, God is going to let you go into captivity to Babylon. And they said, oh, psh, that ain't going to happen. But 150 years later, when Jeremiah was writing, surely the people of Judah must have known it's getting closer because their neighbors to the north, Israel, had gone into captivity to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were on their doorstep. But they still wouldn't stop doing wrong. Never understood this. Why is it when people start feeling the heat for their lifestyle choices, why is it they don't stop and turn around? Why do the people keep, I've never understood that. But even after watching their northern neighbors go into captivity to the Babylonians, the people of Judah saying, well, it ain't going to happen to us. They deserve it after all. They've been godless for years. But after all, we're still, we're still worshiping the true God, although we've got our idols too. And, and, and Jeremiah was pleading with them, please, it's, the, the clock is ticking. And finally there was a point where there was a click. I don't know when that click occurred. But that click was God saying, that's it. There's no more question mark. It's going down. You're going to go into captivity to the people of Babylon. And God told Jeremiah, it's, it's going to happen. There's nothing that can change this. Now, if we read Jeremiah 29, 11, a few moments ago, where God said, no plans that I have for you, plans to give you hope in the future, we need to know who exactly that was written to. And you have to go back eight chapters earlier to Jeremiah 21 to learn who this was given to. In Jeremiah 21, verse 8, the Bible says, tell all the people, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice of life or death. Now, that's kind of interesting because if this is a multiple choice question, there's no C or D. It's just A or B, right? God says, okay, you know, to all of you, click, it's already happened. You're going to go into captivity of the Babylonians. You got a choice. You can choose between life or death. Everyone who stays in Jerusalem will die from war, famine, or disease. But those who go out and surrender to the Babylonians will live. Their reward will be life. For I've decided to bring disaster and not good upon this city, says the Lord. It will be handed over to the king of Babylon, and he will reduce it to ashes. Now, I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up learning the Bible. And, and, and in, in my study of the Bible and in my reading of the Bible, I have certain expectations. Whenever I start a narrative, I expect God to say certain things because he just has sort of MOs, ways that he works. 
And this is so backward to the way that God usually works because I would expect God to see something like this. Okay, choose life or death. If you want to choose life, stay in the holy city of Jerusalem and have faith in me. If you want to choose death, well, you just walk out and surrender to the king of Babylon. That's exactly what I would expect God to say. But instead, God says the reverse. He says, look, if you want to die, you just stay here in the holy city, Jerusalem. If you want to choose life, walk out and surrender to the king of the city. That's the worst place in the world. I'm really old. And a few of you can remember movies from the 70s. There was a movie called The Poseidon Adventure. Hope you're not going on a cruise anytime soon for me to tell the story, but... Uh, <laughs> Beside Adventure is a story of a cruise ship that flips upside down. And there are a few people who are living, and there is a guy who is leading a rescue group. And one of the toughest jobs that he has is convincing everybody that the way up is down. Because everything is upside down. And every once in a while, life just turns upside down. And it did for these people who lived in Judah. And it's the Poseidon effect. God is saying, look, up is now down, and down is now up. And, and if you want to choose life, you're going to have to walk out of here and surrender to the king of the Babylon. Because I have decided I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, and you don't want to be here. So there were people that listened to God, and they are the, eventually the ones who will hear Jeremiah 29, 11. And they did the unthinkable. They walked away from their houses, walked away from their jobs, walked away from the temple where they worshipped. They walked away from everything they knew, walked out the side of the city, and handed themselves over to the soldiers of the king of Babylon and surrendered. And now, these people, who as an act of faith have chosen to do what God wants them to do, are taken to Babylon. And they're in a place that they never thought they would be. It's the last place they ever thought they would be. What am I doing in Babylon? And I can sort of tell from the text that they did what I do. They did what I did when everything was falling apart on me last year. They just sort of froze. And they said to themselves, well, we're going to stay here. God clearly doesn't want me to be here. God doesn't want me to be in Babylon. He's going to nuke Jerusalem, and then he's going to call me back and give us the all-clear sign, and we're going to go back home. So I think they went over to Babylon, and they just waited by the phone. Da, 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 da. And they're waiting for God to call. And they're not doing anything. They're just frozen. Have you ever been there? Boy, it's a miserable thing waiting for the phone to ring, isn't it? Because life is sometimes going to put you in the last place you ever thought you would be. Because you stood at an altar, and you promised your life to that man. And you said, I will be there for you. And you meant it. And you never thought he would walk out on you. And now you're in Babylon. And you're thinking, what am I doing here? Surely I'm a God follower. I'm a Christ follower. Surely it can't be God's will for me to be in here. And, and, I'm, and you're waiting on the phone, by the phone for somebody to love you again. And that guy's dating somebody else and getting on with his life. And you're thinking, I don't understand why I'm in Babylon and I can't have the phone ring. Or I'm sick and I can't get well. And I'm waiting. I'm in Babylon. I shouldn't be here. And I'm waiting for the phone to ring. And my job is blown away. And and I'm in Babylon, I don't, I'm, I'm working in a job, I, I, I don't understand it, and I'm way overqualified for it, I'm not getting paid what I'm worth, and I'm waiting for the phone to ring. And now we move into Jeremiah 29, the chapter, and I want to do something that's rarely done. I want to read the verses that precede Jeremiah 29, 11. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes. What? 
in Babylon? Build homes. Sometimes life is going to put you in Babylon and the phone is not going to ring for a while. Life is not going to change for a while. God said, Bill, well, God, that, that could take several months. God said, build homes. Plant gardens. Well, that, that'll take a little while. Eat the food they produce. Oh, we're talking about a season now. Marry. Boy, for some of those guys, that could have taken a long time to find somebody. Marry. Have children. Then find spouses. Oh, that means i got to wait for them to grow up. Then find spouses for them that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Oh, at this point, these Jews here in Babylon have got to say, wait a minute, Lord, you do realize the city you sent us is Babylon. You want us to pray for Babylon? These are Jews who have grown up every morning. They have been taught since childhood, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It was in the word of God. And now God is like, look, you're in Babylon. You never thought you'd be there, but the phone is not going to ring for a while. So build houses, plant vineyards, eat the fruit of the vineyards, find somebody to marry, have some kids, raise the kids right, find somebody for them to marry. They could do that back in those days. Find somebody for them to marry, have your grandkids, don't dwindle away, multiply, and by the way, Pray for the peace of Babylon. Why? Because its condition will affect your condition. Some of you are in a job you don't like. I'm in Babylon. I work in Babylon. Mark tomorrow, I will go to Babylon. Later this afternoon, I will go, I will put my badge on and my lanyard on, and I will go to Babylon. And I think it's crazy. I think it's awful. It's, it's just a pagan place. People there, they don't think like I think. It's just, it's just awful. It's just, it's a and God is saying, look, pray, pray for that place. Pray for your bo my boss. Pray he goes into eternity. No. <laughs> You've got a thought about which place. No, God is saying, look, you may not be where you want to be. Every once in a while, life puts you in Babylon. It's the Poseidon effect. Up is down and down is up. And, and, you, and you're in an upside down place. And God is saying, look, just here's the word everybody remembers that talk by. God said to the people, just function. Just function. Because when we're in Babylon, and, we, and you do like I do, we freeze. And we wait for the phone to ring. And God is saying, don't do that. Stop that. Just function. Yeah, you're where you never thought you'd be. You're dealing with what you never thought you'd be dealing with. You're where you thought no Godfather would ever be. But you're there right now. And God is saying, okay, here's what you do. You get up in the morning and you put one foot in front of the other. And you pay your bills. And you keep your word. And if you're married, you be good to your wife. You be good to your husband. If you have kids, you raise your kids. Even though you're where you never thought you'd be, maybe you shouldn't be there. Maybe it's other people's fault for where you are for being in Babylon. And God is saying, just function. Just function. I know how some of us are, starting with me, a little bit contrarian. We hear that and we think, well, I thought God was a God of love. I mean, after all, where's the sympathy? These people have lost their houses, lost their land, lost their place of worship. They're in Babylon where they don't know the language or the customs. And God is saying, just function. I mean, for, to a lot of us, that's like God saying, just deal with it. That's cold. And you know what? I would agree with you. 
If the chapter ended right there, I, I would be in your corner. I would stand right there with you and say, well, this is really cold of God. These poor people have lost everything. God's saying, function, just deal with it. Just move on. But that's not what he said. Uh, I'm going to take you now to Jeremiah 29, 11, and then, so you're going to understand this verse now. What's the first word of the verse? It's for. A synonym for for is because. Anytime you find the word therefore, for, because in the Bible, it's, it's, it's predicated upon what comes before it. Well, what comes before Jeremiah 29, 11? Just function. God said, just function because. I know. The plans I have for you, says the Lord, they're good plans and not for disaster. You may feel like they're for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Sometimes when we read the Bible, our English betrays us. And in that first line in Jeremiah 29, 11, English betrays us in a couple of places because there is no English word really to tell you what the word no means right there because it's such a huge word. The Hebrew word for know there means to know by seeing. What God is saying is, I have seen your future. That's what you and I can't see. Aren't you interested in the fact that when we're taught the Lord's Prayer, the second phrase of the Lord's Prayer is in heaven? You, you ever thought about that? Why does God have us pray? Or Jesus had us pray, our Father in heaven. You think it's like addressing an envelope? You're putting the name and an address on there? Well, guys, God and he lives in heaven. No. The reason why we put in heaven in our prayer, it's almost like a disclaimer. It's like saying, God, I think I know what to ask for, but you have a vantage point I don't have. You're in heaven. You see what I can't see. And number one on the hip parade that God can see that you and I can't see is the future. I don't know what's going to happen. I know some things. I know some things that I haven't seen. But God is saying, Mark, when it comes to your future, I know because I've seen it. And it's good. I talked to my dad before I came out here. My mom and dad love Christmas, and I should tell you, this is more than you want to know. But um, I grew up as a baby boomer. My only living sibling is 12 years older than I, so I almost grew up like an only child. And my parents were children of the Depression, and they were teens during World War II, and I grew up like so many boomers. My parents said, I didn't have it, so my kid's going to have it. And, and my parents, as I said, love Christmas. They would start getting ready for Christmas months in advance. Christmas season started in our house Thanksgiving evening tree would go up. My parents said, they've been thinking about my presents for months. Most of the time, they bought it months in advance. So the tree would go up, lights would go on the tree, and next thing, next thing you know, presents all under the tree. Things for me, but wrapped up, covered up. Now, I don't know if anybody else here has ADD or not, or as bad as I have it, but I got to tell you that one of the, and I didn't know what it was called back then, but one of the aspects of ADD is just an insatiable curiosity. That was my future under that tree, wrapped up, covered up. And I just had to know what was there. Now, my mother, my mother had a poker face, and I'd try to ask her questions, you know, because I'd start trying to, like, move her into what I thought might be under there. So I'd start asking her questions, and if I got anywhere in the zip code of what she got for me, she'd just shut me down. There's this poker face. Don't ask any more questions. But my dad was a mess. Because he, he loved Christmas, and he loved getting stuff for me, and he loved getting me stuff he thought I'd like. And, and, and so I knew that Dad, Dad was the soft one. He, he was the weak link in the chain. <laughs> and so I'd start quizzing him about what was under the tree. And so I'd, I'd throw in a couple of clinker questions at first that I knew were worthless. I just wanted to get him in the rhythm of answering my questions, you know. <laughs> and then I'd move in, and if I got close, I'd see this big grin come on his face. 
And if I guessed it, he would start giggling. And it just used to freak my mother out because I would wind up getting my presents on December 13th because I guessed them. So whenever I read this verse, I always think about dad at Christmas because you have to understand that just like my father had good stuff for me in the future that was all wrapped up and he had the smile on his face and he couldn't help himself from giggling. That is how your heavenly father is. He has seen your future. You may be in Babylon and you're just functioning. God is saying, go ahead and function because I've seen your future and I can't get the smile off my face. Well, if the word no betrays us, the word plans really comes up short. The Hebrew word for plans there occurs some 130 times in our Bible. And we get our word machinations from it. The root word of machination is machine. Do I have any engineers here today? In all of our service, we have some engineers. Engineers raise your hands like this, right? I am, so I am so impressed with you guys and gals who engineer. Organized minds. You know, to the rest of us, all the pieces can lie there on the floor and it looks like a disaster. But not to you. Because you're an engineer. You know how they fit together. The rest of us see pieces. You see the whole thing. And especially if you're the one who engineered it. If you're the one who did the engineering, if you're the one who machined it, if you're the one who, who knows how the pieces fit together, while the rest of us can look at it like a disaster, you say, it's not a disaster, because I did the engineering, and I know how all the pieces fit together. That is exactly the word that God is using there. God has said, I know your future. I can't keep the smile off my face, because I did the engineering. It just looks like broken pieces to you. But God says, I know how the pieces fit together. There is another verse in your Bible that uses the same word in Hebrew. It's Genesis 50, 20. My favorite Old Testament character is Joseph. I did a series about him, what, two years ago called Thrive? Thrive is the life of Joseph. And again, it's what, what an I don't know if any of you are soul sisters or soul brothers to Joseph, but if you ever felt like every power source in your life was trying to screw you over, you, you're probably pretty close to Joseph. Because for the first 29 years of Joseph's life, it's like anybody who had power in his life was out to hurt him pretty much. Joseph grew up the 11th of 12 brothers. And his 10 older brothers absolutely hated his guts. The Bible says they hated him so much, they couldn't even say a civil word to him. Boy, Thanksgiving and Christmas must have been a mess. Jo Joseph, you see, was daddy's favorite. And that, you know how that works in a family. And, and the family was wealthy. And wealth in those days was cattle, and it was sheep specifically. And so constantly they had to find grazing land. And so it, his 10 older brothers were responsible to take care of all the sheep. And they constantly had to be on the move. They couldn't live at home during grazing season. They had to go out and camp in tents. On the other hand, Joseph was the family accountant. He was back, he was back at home wearing the Hickey Freeman suit. While his brothers were out having to work in the hot sun, Joseph was the accountant. And that caused them to hate him even more. 
And one day Jacob's father, Jacob, Joseph's father, said, go out and check on your brothers. Well, it's tough when you're the hall monitor at work. When you've got to be the hall monitor at home, that is no fun at all. So Joseph goes out to check on his brothers, and his brothers see him coming wearing the hickey for him, and they're saying, you know what? We're so tired of this guy's face, we're just going to whack him. Now, I don't know, if you're in charge of a large organization, you know that sometimes people who are not in charge, if they're sitting in a meeting, they can talk crazy because after all, they're not in charge. They can say crazy stuff. They can talk about crazy possibilities, but they just, you know, they're not in charge, so it's okay. Joseph's brothers are talking about killing him. Reuben, on the other hand, is the oldest brother. He's responsible to daddy for Joseph's well-being. So Reuben knows there's no way in the world they can kill Joseph. So he tries to find middle ground with his brothers. He said, well, let's put him in a pit. And all that time they were going to, and they threw him down in a hole and they were going to make fun of him. And all the time it was Reuben's plan to get him out of the pit and send him back home to daddy so that it wouldn't be Reuben's neck. But Reuben had to run an errand. And the next thing you know, some slave traders came by and his nine older brothers who were there said, oh, we're not going to get anything for him. If we kill him, let's sell him. And while Reuben was gone, they sell him. They sell their brother for 20 pieces of silver. Dish me a lot traders. And they don't take him to Babylon, but they take him to a place just as bad. They take him to Egypt. Joseph doesn't know anybody in Egypt. He doesn't have any. He's a slave. And all of a sudden, he's in, and then the phone's not ringing. Dad's not coming to get him. There's no search party. I mean, surely Joseph must have thought after a few days, surely Dad's going to find out about this and somebody's going to get me. But it didn't happen. So you know what Joseph did? He just functioned. He found himself the bottom slave in the house of the man who would be, by today's definition, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And Joseph said, okay, if I'm a slave, I'm going to be the best slave in the house. And he just functioned. And the next thing you know, he started rising through the ranks. Until one day, he becomes the assistant to the main guy. Joseph is driving corporate Bentley. He is wearing the best clothes. He's deciding who gets to do what. I mean, this is pretty good. I mean, the pieces are starting to fit together, right? But jo- jo- Potiphar, the guy that he works for, his wife is a hottie. At least she thinks she is. And she starts flirting with Joseph, and she wants to go to bed with Joseph. And Joseph's saying, no, I can't do that because my master's good to me. And, and she kept flirting. He kept saying no. One day, Joseph was in the house, and, and nobody else is there. And she starts coming on to Joseph, and, and she reaches out and grabs Joseph's robe. And the only thing Joseph knows to do is to run. And he leaves the robe in her hands. And as the old saying goes, hell has no fury. Like, And when Potiphar came home, Potiphar's wife said, look what your boy tried. To, he tried to rape me. I got his coat. And by nightfall, Joseph is in prison wearing an orange jumpsuit with a number across him on a trumped-up rape charge. How about that for being in Babylon? God, I can't believe. I tried to do the right thing. I didn't sleep with a woman. I pushed her away. Other guys would have taken that in a heartbeat, but I pushed her away. And look what happened to me. Now I'm in Babylon. Phone's not ringing. Joseph's in prison. What does he do? He just functions, just puts one foot in front of the other. He just says, well, if I'm in prison, I'm going to be the best prisoner here. And the next thing you know, Joseph is basically running the prison. I mean, he's a prisoner. He still has a jumpsuit on and a number. But the warden has put Joseph in charge of everything that happens in a prison. Well, one day while Joseph is like seeing the other prisoners, he notices a couple of new boys in the prison. They happen to be the king's top servants, his butler and his baker. Pharaoh, I think, had a quick, quick temper, and he thought one of them had tried to poison him. Threw them both in jail. They're both under a death sentence. They have a dream. Did I tell you Joseph could interpret dreams? God just gave him supernatural ability to know what dreams are. And so the, the, the butler and the baker, they tell Joseph their dreams, and Joseph said, Mr. Baker, I got bad news for you. You're going to die. They're going to cut your head off. 
And, and Mr. Butler, I got really good news for you. You're going to get your job back and you're going to be restored to your place. And man, when it all came down, just like Joseph said, the butler's getting ready to leave. He's getting his street clothes back on. And, and uh, Joseph said, hey, when you get back to Pharaoh, would you tell him about me? Oh, yes. Yes. As soon as I get back, I'll tell the Pharaoh about you. He was lying. I mean, after all, the man just got his job back. He's not going to do any freelancing. Can you imagine this butler getting his job back, going right into the Pharaoh and saying, hey, Mr. Pharaoh, I was down there in the jail. There's a guy down there in the jail who says he's innocent. They all say they're innocent. And I tell you, the butler was just glad to get his job back. But about two years later, did you get that? About two years later, what's Joseph doing? Just functioning. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream, can't figure it out, knows it's a big dream. Calls in all the experts. The experts don't know anything about it. And the butler's thinking, oh, could have had a V8. There's a guy down in the jail <laughs> whose name is Joseph, and he knows about dreams. And Pharaoh says, get him out here. And Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph can interpret it. He says to him, well, your dreams mean that they're going to be, you know, seven really, really great economic years, and then they're going to be seven really, really bad economic years. And when things are really going good, we need to, like, hold stuff back and take care of the future so that when we have the bad economic years, well, we could use some of this in Washington today, couldn't we? <laughs> and, and he said, you need somebody really sharp to manage this. And Pharaoh said, well, you're the smartest guy in the room. How about you take the job? And Joseph goes from wearing an orange jumpsuit to being the most powerful man in the world in just a matter of minutes. Now there's the issue of the ten brothers who sold him. So Joseph just has them all killed. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he takes care of them. He forgives them. Brings them to Egypt. Gives them ranches. All the swimming pools. Take Some of these you have to just read in between the lines to see that. Okay. <laughs> Helps to have a really vivid imagination. <laughs> he brings them there, takes good care of them, especially his younger brother who he loves so much, Benjamin, and his daddy. And he brings his elderly dad there and takes so good care of his dad. Any of you see Godfather 2? Do you remember, if you did, do you remember that, you know, Fredo has messed Michael up and, and almost cost him his life and, and it's his brother and, and there's this estrangement, but there's that moment where Michael forgives Fredo and he puts his arms around him and Fredo thinks he's okay and then Michael looks at his guy and kind of winks at him and says... Don't do anything to him while his mother is alive. We all know what happened to poor Fredo when mama died. Now, I think Joseph's brothers had seen Godfather too, and they're saying, you know what? I mean, Joseph is letting us live as long as our dad is alive, but when our dad dies, he's going to kill us. Going to get even. Well, dad got sick, dad died, Joseph's brothers eating their nails. And that's when Joseph calls them in. And he says the words that have the same word as Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's look at it. You, there it is. You engineered this to harm me. But God engineered it for good. The it is the same. The it is what they did. It happens. I mean, there's stuff that's going to happen to you. And you're going to say, where's God? But the deal, is not, the deal is not who caused what is happening in your life. It's who's engineering it. It's who's machining it. Because, see, God is able to take a whole series of bad things that happen in your life and engineer the pieces to make it good. 
That's the power of your God. See, Joseph had the ability to look back of all the bad things that happened to him. Sold. That's not good. But where was he sold to? Egypt. Well, he basically rescues the world. But he can't rescue the world if he's not in Egypt. If he's not lied on by Potiphar's wife, he's not going to be in jail when Pharaoh's two servants come there with dreams they can't interpret. If the butler doesn't wait two years to tell Pharaoh about Joseph, he's going to tell Pharaoh on a day that Pharaoh could care less. Has to be on the day where Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph was able to look back on all those things that happened in his life and said, you know what? You, my brothers, you machined this thing to do me harm, but God engineered it. If you're in Babylon today, you just function. And you don't just function because God is saying, just deal with it. You function because God is up in heaven, smiling from ear to ear, saying, I've seen your future, and it's good. It's all wrapped up to you right now. But I've seen your future, and it's good. I know. Because I machined it, and I engineered the pieces. Father, I pray that you will help us to grasp this today. Help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me one more moment? Could be here today that you've said, Mark, I'd love to have this promise come true in my life. And earlier you said that this promise wasn't for everybody. And you're right. This promise is for people that are in a relationship with God. You say, well, how do I get in a relationship with God? Do I join a church? No. Do I try to be good? It's not enough. The only way to get into a relationship with God is to receive a gift. And that gift is that Jesus Christ, God sent his own son, his only son into the world and punished him for your sin and my sin. Put him on a cross and the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for our sins. And the reason why God did that was he wanted to push our sins out of the way so that he could adopt us freely, give us unconditional love. And how do you get that? How do you accept any gift? By faith, you just reach out and accept it. Now, I said earlier, I don't like prosy language. What I'm talking about is you asking and believing. Would you be willing to do that today? You say, Mark, I'm not sure I know how to ask. Well, let me help you. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are words to ask God for a relationship, for forgiveness, for adoption, for a relationship that goes to heaven, and a relationship that guarantees that God will engineer all your pieces for good. Would you be willing to ask for the gift? If so, let's pray together. I'll pray it slowly because the words aren't important. It's what you mean that matters. Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me unconditionally so much that you put your son on a cross to die for me. I ask you to forgive me and make me your child. I turn from my old way of life and with your help and grace, I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.